Beloved, I've been thinking about this psalm for a few weeks, and I thought this would be a good night to bring it forward as the message from the Lord tonight for us upon the occasion of approaching the Lord's Supper tonight. Let us pray and then uh, let us pray then read the scriptures. Our God and Father, we do ask that you would now help us upon this occasion of the public reading of your word and its preaching. Help me, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O God, and help your congregation. Help us all recognize the authority of our living God herein, the word. Give us the grace to yield to it, to believe it, to understand, and to do. Reform us even yet by your word and spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts by your word. Fill our hearts as we draw near to the sacrament. Give us, indeed, Lord, fresh and clean eyes to see the glory of our humiliated Savior, who is now exalted to your right hand. We pray for this help to discern the body and the blood. May the word greatly help. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 41, 13 verses. This is the last psalm of book one of the five books of the Psalter. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Let us pray. I already prayed. I must be tired. I'm trying to do two prayers or take a nap. You can tell in that reading that the life setting for this psalm is perhaps a physical illness that had befallen David, one that was rather significant one that kept him on a bed for a long time to the point where word was getting out and around that he was so very sick. Those of things are not specifically identified for us, and that is often the will of the Spirit of God so that we would have a certain versatility with these psalms. 
and not narrowly apply them to someone with one kind of illness or one kind of circumstance. Now in our reading tonight, we have this wonderful Psalm of David. And this Psalm is bringing forward a very, very simple gospel lesson. That lesson is best stated in the words of our Lord Jesus recorded in Luke 7.23. Now, if I were sitting where you were, I might even write that in my margin, or at least on my bulletin, or at least be glad that the preacher said it. The simple message of Psalm 41 is stated by our Lord Jesus in Luke 7.23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is the lesson of Psalm 41. Now, why is that promised divine blessing from Jesus the lesson of this psalm? Here is why. Our psalm itself opens with a declaration of divine blessing on anyone who considers the poor or who regards the poor, as the Lexham Bible translates it. Now, at first, we might think this is about good works for the poor. Help the poor, give money to the poor, protect the poor, get housing for the poor. But the psalm is not about our good works toward the poor. Not at all. It is actually about our faith. The phrase, considers the poor, uses a Hebrew word that means correctly discerns the poor. And the word poor even itself could be translated as the New American Standard translates it, the helpless. But I'm laboring for a moment before you on this word considers. Correctly discerns the poor would be a synonymous phrase. Or has intelligence with regards to the poor. Blessed is that man. Or properly ponders the poor. Or is wise about the poor. All of these would be adequate translations of the Hebrew here. To consider the poor is not to do the good work of giving alms to the poor. Of course, poor sinners like us, redeemed by the grace of God, are still expected to give alms to the poor, and you as a congregation do that. We do it publicly together every first Sunday of the month when we take up our benevolent collection during our final communion song. We are, of course, supposed to do that. But to consider the poor really means to understand the poor and the weak and the loser. To understand someone who is under a load of adversity and humiliation, but who is actually righteous, not wicked. To consider the poor ultimately means not to be improperly offended by their humiliation. And ultimately, because this is a psalm of David, this proper understanding of the humiliated helpless is about Jesus Christ. And this is why Luke 7, 23 is the New Testament exposition of this entire psalm. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Me, the ultimate helpless one among you. Me, the ultimate humiliated one. I'm referring, of course, to Jesus Christ saying this. Blessed is the one. Blessed by God <laughs> is anyone who rightly understands the social and political and religious failures of Jesus 
when he was in the world of men. In other words, blessed is the one who is not offended by heaven's king when he came to earth and was rejected and put to death on a cross by his own people and laid in a grave. Now that is the correct meaning of the whole psalm, and it is easy to prove. When you come to the body of the psalm, which is verses 4 through 10, and the quotation marks that begin at verse 4 should properly end at the end of verse 10. When you come to this body of the body of the psalm, you hear David crying out to God about the people around him who are not blessed with a heaven-given intelligence to properly understand David's own helpless condition. David is weak and helpless, but his enemies take it as proof he is wicked. But the opposite is the truth. David is not wicked. If he were, he would not be praying like this. He is weak and helpless, not because he is wicked under God's wrath, but because he is righteous by grace and called by God to be a foreshadowing of Christ the King through his suffering in the office of king. Look now at all the inability of these men to rightly consider, to ponder the helpless in front of them. Look in verse 5. In verse 5, his enemies look on David's helplessness and say, when will he die and his name perish? The malice in their hearts regards David as a man under divine condemnation. In verse 6, one of his companions comes to visit him in his helplessness. But this visitor is so blind as to what God is doing with David He only utters empty words. Now, I think this means the visitor could not say to David, God has not forsaken you. He said a lot of stuff, but he couldn't say that. He could not say to David, God loves you. He could not say to David what David himself says at the end of the psalm, God delights in you, David. The visitor couldn't say any of this. He could not say to David anything like this because the visitor didn't think a man so helpless as David could be so dear to God. He's a theologian of glory, this visitor. He's stuck in a prosperity gospel, this visitor. Remember Job's companions? They are there described in verse 6, if you will. They were just like this. They uttered empty words. And it's their words that fill most of the book of Job. And they seem to be austere, aged men, but they have no blessed intelligence to properly regard the poor, to properly regard a man like Job covered with sores, having lost everything, all his children, all his wealth, and now has a wife who's saying, curse God and die. His friends have no ability to see and regard him properly because they are not blessed. They are not blessed with the divine blessing of faith and sight. In verse 7, we learn that many people who hate David use the occasion of his helplessness to whisper together about him. They all imagine that David is moving down, down, down to hell and wrath instead of up, up, up to glory. 
They cannot imagine that David's faithful sufferings are bringing him to the threshold of glory. They can't imagine that that's how this is, this is working. In verse 8, they say he is surely going to die. Of course he will die, they think. He deserves to die. A man in that kind of condition, God should just finish him off because look what he's done to him already. He must be wicked. You see, the, the lesson of Job is actually repeated in the life of David. It's right here in Psalm 41. And then we learn in verse 9 that even David's close friend, in whom he once trusted, who ate bread with him, that friend now lifts his heel against David. This is a description of treachery. Remember Edmund? <laughs> Treacherous Edmund from the Chronicles of Narnia? David's close friend has not merely drifted away, but has attacked him, purposely tripped him, trampled him like a horse. His close friend is so lacking in his ability to properly consider the poor, to see what God is really doing with helpless David, the close, fr the close friend thinks it is no big deal to stab David in the back because God is already crushing him. Might as well just assist Ahithophel, the Gilanite, comes to mind in this respect. Ahithophel was David's counselor, a man greatly esteemed by David. But when David's son Absalom decided to forcefully take the kingdom from his father, Ahithophel switched sides and joined the mutinous son. 2 Samuel 15.31 reads, And it was told David, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And later the Lord repaid Ahithophel with, for his treachery. He ended up hanging himself in disgrace. But here's the point. Ahithophel joined Absalom because he regarded David's weakness with error. He could not consider the poor rightly. He did not have the eyes of God. More accurately, he didn't have the word of God in his heart because he should have known. He should have known from Genesis 3.15 that the redeemer of the race of men would be bruised, would be humiliated, would become the helpless. If the spirit had blessed him, he would have known by the word the way the redemption of sinners would come into the world. But he thought God must have forsaken David if David could be so easily humiliated by his son. Now, when we get to verse 10, and I'm going to come back to verse 9, when we get to verse 10, the last verse of David's personal prayer, he has the audacity to do what none of the others he mentions would do for him because they could not properly understand his weakness. And what is David's audacious act in verse 10? He prays to God to be gracious to him and to raise him up. He prays to God to bring him out of the dark hole he is in. Imagine, imagine a man among the crowd at the foot of the cross. Remember that crowd full of mockers? Imagine one man in the midst of those mockers at the foot of the cross 
start praying that Jesus would be raised up by God, by the power of God from the grave, and installed as heaven's king. Imagine that man praying among those mockers. He would soon be mocked himself, wouldn't he? Now notice David's petition in verse 10. He is praying that the Lord would raise him up, not by his merits, but by grace. That petition is always to the honor of God. And God is honored by anyone who begs for grace. Because that means they have come to an end of themselves. They have nothing to put on the scale. Even their best works they don't want on the scale. They know the living God is high and holy. And that he reconciles to sinners only by grace. None of David's friends could pray like this for him. That's how blind they were how unable they were to properly consider the helpless. They were theologians of glory. They thought David wicked to be under such adversity. So David prays, God, show me all, show me, show me and show all men how gracious you are by raising me up from my humiliation. His, these friends he mentions these visitors he mentions, these enemies he mentions, they do not want him raised up. Not by grace, not by anything. They think they are joining God's condemning work on David by wanting him dead. They are so blind. They know not God. But notice why David wants to be raised up. Verse 10 that I may repay them. Now, beloved, this is not a request for personal revenge. It's so, it's so important that we don't misread our Bibles. Who is making this petition? This is the petition of a suffering king, a magistrate, the king of God's own appointment, and choosing. This is not the private personal petition of an angry man wanting to get personal revenge. David is not saying, put me back on top so I can really hurt all the people who made me feel bad. No, remember, David is the rightful king. He wants to be restored to his throne so he can affect justice. He wants to bind and remove from his kingdom those would-be usurpers who want to change the whole nature of God's kingdom by their prosperity gospel, which would overlook the wicked. No, it wouldn't. Actually, I correct myself. These men who want to change the very nature of God's kingdom wouldn't overlook the wicked or the, or the weak. It wouldn't overlook the weak. It would actually regard the weak as the wicked, it would regard the poor as the wicked. It would regard the suffering and the losers as the wicked, that God must really be angry with them. Let's join him and finish his work. That's what they would do to the kingdom. And they did it, didn't they? 
The scribes and the Pharisees did it. They weighed people down. They were men of affluence who strutted their affluence on the street and neglected the poor. Worse, they didn't consider the poor, rightly. So David, in his petition, verse 10, wants to do what the king should do. He wants to keep, cast out all those who would change the nature of God's kingdom, which is what Adam as vice regent should have done in the garden. He should have driven out the serpent who wanted to change the nature of God's kingdom. Adam failed. David has learned from that failure. And it's clear that he has learned by his petition in verse 10. This all reminds us of Matthew 8, 11, and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that upon the occasion of his exaltation, when his humiliation ends, when he is enthroned on high at the right hand of God after his resurrection and ascension, he says this in Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who refused to properly regard the helpless, they're the same ones who refused to properly regard Christ in his own humiliation. So here, here's what I've been arguing. This whole psalm is about one thing, the divine blessing that belongs to those who are gifted by heaven to properly understand the helpless humiliation that falls upon those whom God loves. This psalm is about David, but this psalm is ultimately about Jesus Christ because it is about King David. Our Lord even shows us it is about himself by what he said to Judas on the night of his arrest. Jesus quoted Psalm 41.9 as he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. John 13.18, speaking to his disciples in the upper room about the one who will betray him. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. <laughs> Judas was without the divine blessing he was without the divine blessing that would have cleared his eye by, the, by faith to recognize in the humiliation of the Messiah. God was not displeased with Christ by this humiliation. But in fact, God delighted in his king and would raise him up off his deathbed a bed of death, a grave of death. He would raise him up 
and set him in his presence forevermore, just as David petitions in Psalm 41. Judas was not blessed to see that. The ones that were chosen were so blessed. Friends, do you have the divine blessing to look upon Jesus Christ and see in his humiliation, a a humiliation that continues upon the earth today where his name is preached. It doesn't continue in his person today where he is enthroned, but it continues upon the earth today. Have you received the divine blessing to recognize that the humiliated man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the beloved son of God. And his humiliation wasn't because God hated him, but because God loved him and appointed him to be the servant who would lift the debt of sin, the debt of sin, off his people by his own substitution of his body under judicial punishment, the cross. Do you see that? Are you able to consider properly the helpless, the helpless Messiah? That's where it all begins. Even in this psalm, when David prays at the beginning of his his petition in verse 4, he says, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Even that is a petition of our Lord Jesus Christ. No way, pastor. Can't be. No way. And I'm, I'm not really saying that you think that, but I'm introducing in my expression a spirit of men that regards Jesus with honor, but will not allow him to be a sin bearer. Even that expression of David regarding his own sin is ultimately fulfilled in the ministry of the humiliated, helpless Messiah. He was numbered among the transgressors. He became the adulterer. He became the murderer. He became the sexually immoral. He became the thief, the covetous man. Jesus became all the things that you are. He became the sinner. And scripture itself testifies to it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. He knew no sin. That never changed, even when he became sin for us. But our sins were imputed to him. And he stood before God as a sinner and received the judicial penalty due all sinners, and he was put to death. Do you recognize this man? Do you recognize the fullness of his, of his humiliation? Not just a social or political suffering, but the suffering of a sinner for you. You are blessed if you recognize it. You are so blessed if you recognize it.
Beloved, when these things begin to fill our hearts and we see the divine blessing that has been given to us by the Spirit of God to properly regard the helpless, and especially beginning with the helpless Savior, to regard him properly, not as cursed of God, but as servant of God for us sinners. When this begins to fill our heart, it begins to allow us to be imitators of God, as Paul calls us to do in Ephesians. We then become those mentioned at the top of the psalm, those so blessed, and it's evident in us because we now properly regard the helpless. The pastor of a small church, a very small church, who after 10 years is still the pastor of a small church, and after 20 years, still the pastor of a very small church. And after 30 years, still the pastor of a very small church. And many of his fellow pastors, perhaps, or maybe some, or maybe hopefully only a few, think it is his personality or his preaching or his singleness or something that makes him such a humiliated and helpless pastor of small things. But those who are blessed see him rightly. Or the teenage boy or the teenage girl who in their following of Jesus are not the most popular but the most picked upon in their school, in their neighborhood, in their family, among their cousins. But there's another follower of Jesus near that teenager who has been blessed to rightly regard the helpless, the loser, Or the Christian parent who has unbelieving children in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, and they as a parent have been in the church, and half of their children don't believe in the the gospel of Jesus Christ and are walking in worldliness. What do you see when you look upon that parent? A loser? a wicked parent who must have sown some kind of deep sin in their child's heart? Or are you blessed? Are you blessed to properly regard the helpless and the poor? Beloved, you have been blessed to see Jesus Christ and to see one another properly. This is the lesson of Psalm 41. Let us pray.